Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved with helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Peter Wolf. Peter is the Cat Initiatives Analyst for Best Friends Animal Society, one of the nation's largest animal welfare organizations and a leader in the development and operation of community cat programs. Peter's role involves the analysis of science and public policy related to community cat issues, a topic he's been researching and writing about for nearly six years through his blog, Vox Felina. Peter, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. So how did you get started with community cats? Well, I think, you know, like a lot of folks, I like to think I was a a cat guy before it was cool to be a cat guy. Um, (laughs) As a little boy, more than one stray cat followed me home. And in retrospect, you know, I have to admit there was probably a fair amount of encouragement on on my part. But it wasn't until, you know, and I I had cats as soon as, I mean, there was even one uh, that sort of adopted my roommate and myself even before we'd graduated from from college. And so we took him into the apartment that we rented and um, was, was kind of on my way. And it was always sort of, you know, have two cats. So if you work a lot, they can keep each other company. And, and so that was sort of the limits of it. It wasn't until some years later, it was um, 2007, Best Friends Animal Society was involved in a huge rescue about an hour outside of Las Vegas. And this was it was an animal sanctuary that had essentially gone belly up. And again, over the course of this rescue, nearly a thousand cats. And my involvement with it was, you know, I don't want to overstate it. It was very much very modest contribution, helping to socialize some of the cats to make it easier to find for them to find their homes. But it was it was over the course of doing that that I really got a sense of the scale of the issue of of just how many homeless, stray, feral cats, whatever we want to call them, community cats, are out there. And it was there certainly the first time I heard the term uh, TNR, trap, neuter, return. And that sort of set me on this completely different trajectory. And it, it, it was, again, in, in part um, in responding to that, as I say, my contribution was very modest. One of the things I wanted to do, I was doing freelance writing at the time, and I really wanted to get the story out. And it was in the process of pitching that story that I started looking into the academic research about trap, neuter, return, and sort of that, that related field that really opened up my eyes and, as I say, set me on this completely different trajectory. So just for folks that don't happen to know what the Great Kitty Rescue was, could you just tell us a little bit about what happened? Sure. This was a, a, a sanctuary, and I should, I should for, for listeners, that's in air quotes, I suppose. This was a sanctuary, again, about an hour outside of Las Vegas, so middle of the uh, Nevada desert, summertime, and the staff, which was very, I mean, it was sparsely staffed to begin with, essentially walked away from this. And, and some of the volunteers who were involved jumped in, did what they could. And I mean, they were, they're they're valiant efforts. Um, I mean, they were really on the front lines and they, you know, sent out all these mayday calls and uh, best friends responded. 
and went in there with a bunch of staff. And again, I, I, my involvement didn't start until a few months later, but talking to folks who were there, I mean, these, these people were sleeping out again in, in the summer in the Nevada desert and basically, you know, working to, to get meds, food, every kind of assistance to these cats just as quickly as possible. Uh, get a few hours of sleep when you were too exhausted to continue and then, you know, repeat until you, again, you were exhausted. On the, the sanctuary itself, if I remember correctly, there were 748 cats that were rescued from there. And then another 117 uh, were discovered at the former manager's home when county officials went in there. And so it was this enormous, very labor-intensive effort. A lot of the cats were uh, sick and starving. If you look at the the early reports from the local paper, week by week, the numbers go up. You know, initially it said something like an estimated 300 cats, and then the next week it'd be an estimated 400 cats. And as I say, in the end, uh, the total was closer to 1,000 of those cats. And they were very quickly moved to the, the Best Friends Sanctuary in, in southern Utah. A great deal of socialization was required for some of these guys. Great efforts were made to adopt them into homes with great success. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm looking at one of them right now. <laughs> and that process, they were there, Best Friends was there for over a year, right? They were, I believe... On the property in Nevada, it was probably about, I want to say about eight months. And then, again, that was staged in order of priorities. And then there was a special uh, special area at the sanctuary that was set aside for, for these cats until, again, again until such time that uh, enough had been adopted out and that they could be assimilated into the, the existing populations at the sanctuary. I will tell you, one of the most interesting things about this, and I've talked to others who were involved to a far greater extent than I was, and one of the most fascinating things about it, it was, you know, here you sort of had side by side this enormous failing, uh, failure on the part of the people who were supposed to be caring for these cats. Uh, there was, all, you know, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger around that, but side by side with it, you had these people who there were people who dropped what they were doing, drove across the country with an RV and stayed as long as they were needed. So, you know, you had the the, the very best and the very worst of people sort of side by side, if, if you want to think of it that way. As I say, it was absolutely a changing point um, and not just for myself, but for, but for a lot of folks. So there was a, somewhat of a sort of magical energy. I would assume some of that same energy would have been created or that emotion and passion and family community creation also happened at Katrina too. Absolutely. And and I wasn't involved in Katrina. Uh, a lot of the folks who were involved with the, the Great Kitty Rescue had been uh, uh, involved with Katrina. And I heard from more than one of them, in, in some ways, Katrina was easier in that it was sort of mother nature right. versus mankind, if you will. It's a poor way to put it, especially knowing what we know now with the Army Corps of Engineers, and it wasn't really mother nature quite the way it was first represented. But the idea, it, it was a very different thing, again, hearing from folks who had been through Katrina and just, you know, these horrible conditions, but were in some way okay with that. But the fact that people to whom these cats had been entrusted failed was a, a lot harder, I think, for folks to reconcile in their own minds. 
Can you tell me a little bit about what you do or what you write about in your blog, as well as some of the work that you do for best friends? Maybe they cross over or maybe they're very separate. But if you could just share with us some of the things that you end up writing about, some samples, examples of some of the things that you've been doing. Sure. No, it's it's an excellent question. And there is there is a lot of overlap, actually, between my roles as, as a blogger at, at Vox Felina and my role as cat initiatives analyst with, with best friends. And, and a lot of, a lot of what the blogging has to do with, and it, I, I should mention for listeners who may not be familiar with it, the way, just quickly, the, the origins of Vox Felina, it, it was, I think it's, it's a familiar story for folks involved with animal welfare in that there just didn't seem to be anyone out there doing creating what I was looking for. I was looking for, well, where is all the research around this, this broad topic of TNR, whether it's uh, wildlife impacts or reproduction biology and you know how do you manage that with, with sterilization, all those sorts of things. I couldn't find sort of one outlet that I could turn to to find those sorts of things. So I, I don't know what I would have done in the pre-blogging era, uh, but it made it very easy to set it up and see if anyone would show up. What I was able to do there, and again, it's 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 very it's very specific in that not just in terms of the topic, but it's lots of science and policy stuff. And I mean, digging into lots of details with footnotes and citations, and it, it can get very academic. And part of that is just, I suppose, my nature. Although I do try to make it pretty readable for folks who aren't uh, as interested in the academic stuff. But I also feel it's important to be able to make a sound argument. Um, so I, you know, I probably go overboard with citations, but part of that is to sort of rise to the challenge of, look, you're you're kind of going against a grain uh, in the minds of some, saying that TNR is the way to go. You better really be able to defend that position. So I, I really try to do that. The way that that overlaps with my role at at Best Friends is again, there's lots of similar activities, keeping up on scientific studies, for example. And so maybe something I write about, a particularly flawed study, say, about um, that, that argues that cats are responsible for a certain degree of wildlife impacts or something like that, I might really drill into detail um, on the blog. And then for my role at Best Friends, having that background, having drilled down into it and really looked at where is this argument valid, where is it not valid, helps in proposing policy, whether it's local ordinance, state level um, law, going to conferences. I, I do a lot of presentations at conferences and all of that can be folded into those presentations. So as I say, there is, there is actually quite a bit of overlap between the two roles. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Ready to make a big difference for cats in your community? We've got an exciting opportunity that can jumpstart your efforts. The Community Cats Podcast has launched Community Cats Grants. When you qualify for this innovative program, you'll gain valuable knowledge about how to raise funds for your spay-neuter efforts. Plus, we'll match the funds you raise up to $1,000, doubling your ability to make a difference for cats. Fundraising doesn't have to be scary. We'll be with you every step of the way. Check it out. You can find all of the details on the Community Cats podcast website under our education menu. Let's join forces to make the world a better place for community cats. When you are looking at various different public policy issues in various parts of the country, I'm sure you would probably say you've seen some good policies out there and some bad policies 
would you say it's harder to undo a bad policy than to create a new one or not have any policy? I mean, what would you prefer? Obviously, good policy, but no policy versus bad policy. That's always a challenge in my mind. Absolutely. No, in, in fact, that's that's actually very, very insightful. I, I've been in a number of meetings. So uh, I'm, you know, here in, in Phoenix, Arizona, out here, there's just this very strong libertarian streak broadly when it comes to law and policy, right? It doesn't matter what the topic is. It certainly permeates the laws that would govern community cats. So I've been in meetings locally where someone might start to say, well, you know, if we just change the ordinance, if we just had a different, you know, law, and invariably someone will, you know, kind of talk them off the edge and explain, look, the reason we're able to do all the TNR that we do, essentially with, without any interference or, or any obstacles whatsoever, is because there's nothing in the law that addresses it. I mean, if you look through the Phoenix uh, City Code, you see cats mentioned only a couple times in there. I mean, it, it traces back to the, you know, the era when the, the idea was control free roaming dogs. So in that sense, it's often described as agnostic. And, and I often prefer to have sort of agnostic, again, whether you're talking local or state laws when it comes to community cats, because if you're going to start down that path of, well, let's define community cats. Let's define what is a caregiver. Let's define these, just a handful of terms. You very quickly end up kind of all the way at the other end of the spectrum in that you have to uh, develop policy that is so airtight and you have to think of every uh, contingency and make sure that that's been addressed. So in my mind, it's sort of on the one end of the spectrum, you've got, we're able to do this because it doesn't say we can't. And on the other end, you've got explicit, again, definitions, provisions, restrictions, all this stuff. And if it's not done well, it can really come back to bite you. And if you end up with something sort of in the middle and I think that's what, where you were going with this, is that can be, that can really be the worst, is poorly thought out. And by the way, it's, it's worth mentioning, this isn't intended as a criticism, a lot of the folks who end up writing these laws, you know, they don't have a great deal of experience doing this. And so you, you can end up with some real dire unintended consequences. I mean, there's one I can't think of the community, uh, but it, I, I've seen it at a, a presentation that um, Joan Schaffner, uh, one of my favorite people, she teaches at um, George Washington Law School, and she uses it in her presentations. And if you read the ordinance carefully, you will see that what it requires is the animal's owner to be sterilized. Clearly not the intent of the ordinance, but again, it, it, she uses it, and it, it, it gets a chuckle, of course, but the, the, the larger point is this stuff, it, it's easy for those sorts of things to happen when you start tinkering. So a, a light-handed approach is generally preferable. Right. Many of these policies were created with the best intentions and in legislation, but the hard part is once it's in place, it seems it's so much harder to undo or to revise or... I would say be very careful when going down that road and make sure you have somebody in your camp that knows what they're doing. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the most common ones I, I think we see that is uh, it's policy as knee-jerk reaction and that it, that is feeding bans. I, I suppose on one level I can understand where policymakers get the idea that if we stop feeding the cats, then that will address the issue in our community. At the same time, I sort of marvel at the fact that 
as a policymaker, the first, I think one of the first questions I would ask regarding a topic I don't know a great deal about would be, well, where else has this worked? And of course, the answer is nowhere. Feeding ban has never uh, addressed the issue. But you're right, those things, especially because if it is knee-jerk policymaking, there's so much passion that it's become such a hot topic at that particular time. And the idea of revisiting it because a mistake was made in the policymaking, I think elected officials generally don't have an appetite for reversing themselves on something like that. So it can, it can be a real problem. So if you saw a stray cat on the street, what would you do? Right. I, I'm pleased to say it took me a number of years, but my answer is different now than it would have been as a child. As a child, it would have been, you know, do anything possible in my power to lure that cat home in such a way that it seemed like he just followed me of his own accord. Today, first thing I look for is an ear tip. Again, I assume most listeners know, but just in case, the the ear tip is a universal sign that a community cat has been sterilized. If I see an ear tip, immediately, you know, the first thing I think is, well, okay, there's one I don't have to trap and get sterilized. So that's a good thing. But it also probably means somebody in whatever neighborhood I happen to be in is looking out for these guys. And again, we're assuming the cat looks healthy, you know, is not in a location where there's some immediate threat or or something like that. In part, one of the reasons for, for that kind of reaction is we know from, and again, this is where it gets into all these you know, journal articles and, and a lot of the academic kind of wonky stuff, but we know from uh, large-scale studies, and I'm thinking uh, in particular, uh, I know you had John Cicerelli from San Jose on recently, and, and they've done a fantastic job of documenting their results uh, in San Jose, thousands and thousands of cats through that program. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was something like 0.7% of cats coming into that program, their return to field program, were too unhealthy and, and had to be euthanized in the strictest sense of that word. So what does that tell you? You've got more than 99% of the cats coming in there are eligible, meaning they look healthy, they're, they've figured it out how to be perfectly okay as community cats. And as John says all the time, all they need from us is to be sterilized and vaccinated and put back where where we found them. And so that, again, I, I think that sort of philosophy really drives, again, if when I see the community cats, they, you know, of course, if, especially if it's a community close to home and the cat's not ear-tipped and I don't see a, you know, collar tags or something that would indicate that the cat's owned, then that sort of is on my radar either... I may have to go in there and do some TNR myself or find the folks in that area, especially if it's multiple cats. You know, if you say, wait a minute, I saw a lot of cats that aren't ear tipped. Someone's got to get in there and sterilize those guys. Definitely. That's a big problem. If you've got four to six cats that aren't spayed or neutered, that will be a big, big problem several months down the line. Peter, if people are interested in finding you or finding out your blog, how would they reach out to you? The easiest way to find me is, like so many people, I've got a number of email addresses now, but the best one to find me at is peterw at bestfriends.org. That's the one I check most often. For listeners interested in checking out my blog, you can find it at voxfelina, V-O-X-F-E-L-I-N-A, Dot com. Check it out. As I say, I don't get to blog as often as I used to. And it's, it is pretty, you know, listeners be warned. It's pretty wonky stuff. But as I say, I, I hear from folks pretty regularly who find a particular post really, really helpful in 
say, uh, you know, advocating for TNR in their own community, they found that the piece of the puzzle that they needed to address concerns in their own community. So it's found a good audience. And is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? You had actually mentioned in our pre-interview conversation about a community cap programs handbook. Right. So last year, I believe it was November of last year, Best Friends launched uh, an online resource. Uh, listeners can go to bestfriends.org slash CCP, as in Community Cat Programs, handbook. And there it's, it's a pretty large scale resource. Really, we tried to really make it comprehensive, um, but it's broken down into bite-sized pieces, 24 chapters, each of which is its own web page, but also downloadable PDF. So it makes it very easy to share that way as well. And again, it's, it's really comprehensive, everything from tips for trapping and working with local veterinary clinics to uh, how do you budget for a community cat program and even some legal considerations. I mean, we got into that a little bit in our conversation today. So it's a really comprehensive uh, resource, highly recommended for folks who want to learn more about community cats and community cat programs. One last thing to talk about is the importance for the general public even to ask their local municipal shelter if you're bringing a community cat in to them or any community cats that are coming in to ensure that there's a return to field program in place there. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't necessarily realize that in a lot of communities still in late 2016, the most dangerous place for a cat is not necessarily on the street, in a neighborhood, behind the uh, shopping mall. It's in the shelter, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and, and, you know, I'm happy to talk about that at another time. But what we know about these return-to-field programs is they are, they're very much low-hanging fruit in the animal welfare world right now. They turn around uh, a shelter's live release numbers. Literally overnight, the trajectory can start going in the other direction. Really, really remarkable. So you're absolutely right. If, if listeners don't have in their community, don't have a return to field program at their shelter, certainly that's something to push for. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I hope you'll be on the show again in the future. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you again for the invitation, Stacy. Thank you for listening to Community Cats Podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 